I'm Kristen Marchand, and this is the Apiango Line, a podcast that deals with the unique heritage and distinctive culture of the Madawaska and Apiango River Valleys. Today, we have a show called Algonquin Voices, an informative and entertaining conversation that Wendy Jocko and Jane Ann Chartrand had earlier this week with our producer, Barry Conway. Wendy Jocko is the chief of the Algonquins of Pequoctagon First Nation at Golden Lake, and her cousin, Jane Ann Chartrand, hails from the town of Madawaska. Both grew up Algonquin, part of that very unique Indigenous community that may be centered on Golden Lake, but that includes many accomplished individuals living all through the Madawaska and Apiango River Valleys and beyond. As you will soon hear, Wendy Jocko and Jane Ann Chartrand are two such Algonquin individuals with very personal histories that often surprise people who know little of our local Indigenous community. Wendy Jocko, for instance, served nearly 24 years with the Canadian military, including two tours of duty in Bosnia. Jane Ann Chartrand spent much of her life as a correctional officer at the Prison for Women in Kingston, Ontario. These two cousins are also part of a unique Indigenous family known far and wide, During the last century, if you ever had the good fortune to pass through the little village of Madawaska at the confluence of the Apiango and Madawaska rivers, there was a remarkable house that stood along the Madawaska River from the Great War to 1969 when, sadly, it was destroyed accidentally by fire. It was simply known as the Jocko House, but its rambling wraparound front porch welcomed everyone, if only because every local knew that some of the best hunting and fishing guides that our area has ever produced were born and raised in that house. Indeed, when he was only a young lad, our very own producer, Barry Conway, visited that famous Jocko house on more than one occasion. It was there he first met Wendy's father, Leo Jocko, with whom he would later work. It was also a place where Jane Ann's father, Emmett Chartrand, often visited, as he was married to Katie Jocko, Leo's sister. So let's join Wendy Jocko and Jane Ann Chartrand as they talk about their Madawaska roots. Hello, my name is Wendy Jocko. I was born in 1960. My uh, first recollection, uh, I do remember the town of Pembroke as a little girl. And uh, I do remember Pansy Patch Park. I don't know if anybody ever heard of Pansy Patch Park, but playing down there with my sister... And uh, we lived uh, briefly in uh, Petawawa, and that was uh, a military town at the time. Well, it still is a military town. I do recall living in Petawawa and briefly um, living in Oshawa, Ontario. And that was due to being uh, placed in the Children's Aid Society. So I was in uh, Oshawa for a period of time in my life and I do also recall living in Sudbury, Ontario. So I made quite a round, uh, you know, of towns when I was young. In 1969 uh, I moved to Toronto with my mother and my sister and went to a school there called um, St. Clair Junior High. I also attended East York Collegiate. So that was in in East York, what it was known as East York. And um, I was 11 years old when I uh, first met my father again, who lived in, in the town called Madawaska. My brother Sandy actually wanted to go hunting, and he uh, asked my mother, you know, do you think the girls would want to go and meet their father? And she said, oh, I'm quite certain that they would. So that's how uh, I came to 
be in Madawaska for the first time. Hello, I'm Jane Ann Chartrand. I too was born in Pembroke. And uh, they always referred to me as a war baby because I was born at the end of the war in 45. Uh, then was taken to Madawaska on the train because we had a train that went in there. And uh, lived uh, the better part of my young life there and uh, with uh, three other siblings, or two other siblings at the time. My mother and father, who my dad was Emma Chartrand and my mother was Katie Joggle. And uh, so... Uh, when I was 16, of course, I married, and uh, I moved to Toronto. And uh, before I left uh, Madawaska, I had a daughter, so she came with me to Toronto with my husband. And we were there for about three years. Then we moved back to Madawaska because we really didn't, we weren't city people. And uh, then I had a second daughter, and uh, I wanted to raise my children where I was raised. Uh, in my younger days, <clears throat> I spent a lot of time with my grandmother, Mary Jane LaValle, Jockle, and uh, we, we uh, were at the old homestead. And uh, I remember a big front porch walk around that, and she had lilacs planted there, and goldenrods. And she would tell us that the goldenrods were the medicines that she used to use for diabetic sores and stuff like that. Being the eldest granddaughter, I spent a lot of time with her. And I went to school in Madawaska, to St. Matthew's Separate School. That was not a pleasant experience. It was like a residential school because there was not many Native children in Madawaska. So there was uh, horrific things that happened there. And uh, they deemed it a day school in the day. and. Uh, I would go during the day to the school and then I would return at night, but I would spend it with my grandmother until one day my grandmother was very suspicious because of the way I came home and uh, she went to the school and whatever transpired, she beat the priest up with her broom and he left him. So school wasn't the best, but staying with my grandmother was. And uh, my mother was quite ill after I was born because she had three children, just one right after another. Then when I married and went to Toronto, came back, had the two children, and then my husband and I separated. So then I, uh, I stayed in Madawaska quite a while. I worked on construction to uh, look after my two little girls and myself. And uh, But we always had the ties to the old homestead. You know, you could go up there and... They, they had an old uh, coal cellar, they called it, a root cellar. And we used to go in there, and my grandmother was still alive, and she, uh, she always had cream out there, because uh, she had a cow, and she used to have the milk from the cow. And she'd go and she'd skim that cream off, bring it in, put it, break it, uh, bread up in a bowl, put the cream in with brown sugar, and we'd get to eat that. Before bed, of course. But that wasn't really good because we wouldn't go to sleep. <laughs> uh, give me a description of the years you're talking here. You were uh -huh. born in 45, 46? I was born in 45. So the school was the early 50s? Early 60s, I left. Okay, in the early 60s, you <clears throat> left. And the house you're talking about, is this the famous Jocko it house? It is, it is. 
how would you describe that for somebody who's never been to Madawaska, who might be coming to visit Madawaska? Where, okay. whereabouts is it? All right. Well, it's on the right before the the, the car bridge. That's of the description, and the train trestle is just to the right of that. So the laneway went out way in, and you go over the railroad track, you come around a corner, and there's this beautiful old. It almost was like a Tudor house. I don't know where he got the plans. There was four bedrooms upstairs. And when you came down the stairs, there was a closet under the stairs. And the latch never latched. And if my grandmother wanted us to stay upstairs, she'd say, well, don't be going there now because that'll open up and you'll see your old grandfather. And course we debated that my two brothers and I and we went down and sure enough it opened up so needless to say but she had a summer kitchen she had a cast iron stove that burned day and night and anytime you went in there there was always a pot of soup on the back of that stove and a great big huge container of tea she always had tea do you know what the history of that house was did did your grandfather build it or he did Okay. Do you know the history of when, when it was actually built? No, I don't. Any idea? When well, my mom said she was five years old, and she can remember her dad finishing the house because they lived in what they called a section house. Yeah. Just down from where uh, my mother lives now, or lived, rather. She's passed now. Uh, and they all moved in to that big house. So so if she was five years old, I don't know when she was born. <clears throat> she was 98 years old when she passed away, In 19- two years ago. So like in the 1920s? I think so. Isn't okay. that uh, what... No. No, you don't? When was No, my- uh, it's when uh, the First World War started. 1914. My, old, my grandfather's old, um, oldest son, Michael Jonko, <coughs> joined the army. So the war, First World War was 1914 to 1918. And so when he was posted overseas in 1914, he sent his paycheck back to his father. So in between 1914 <coughs> and 18, that's when that house was built. What are your memories of that house, Wendy? My memories are, when I was uh, about four years old, I did actually go and live with my aunt and uncle up in Whitney, Ontario. And uh, we were visiting Granny Jocko, that's what they used to call her, one day. And I remember being at that house on the porch, and uh, there my grandmother came out, and uh, I was actually afraid of her because of her appearance. Her hair was long. speckled gray and she did have a slight um, hook to her nose you know so it was kind of scary as a child Mm -hmm. to see and I didn't know her and of course as a child you know when you don't bond with people that you're you're nervous of them so I started crying hysterically (laughs) my grandmother probably got quite vexed with me and uh, didn't approach me because she could clearly see I was frightened so that's my first memory what are your first memories of uh, not necessarily that house although that's important but of of Madawaska in the area well it was always a granny's house that I remembered I never knew my grandfather because he had passed away and uh, it was always nice to go there. 
because she'd do preserving. And we were a kind of a poor family, if you wanted to call it that, because my dad trapping and, you know, working in the bush and stuff like that. There was never a steady income. But she always seemed to know when we needed food. She'd see her coming down the old railroad track with a little basket of berries and potatoes or whatever it was my mom needed. But going there, it was such a fun time as a child when all my uncles would come home on leave from the army. And she'd tell me, go and get the mat. Go and get the mat and put it at the front door. So just a little kid, I'm running to get this mat, but it said welcome on it. Welcome home or just welcome on it. And then they'd all come in and there'd be music, there'd be singing, and all my uncles would be home and they'd bring their buddies home and the house was just a beehive. What 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 kind of music were they playing a radio they, or uh, was it no, original they, music? The original music. They were violin and lap, no no sorry fiddlers sorry <laughs> and guitars and they sang and. Did you remember any of the songs that they would be singing? Well, they used to sing this one, "The White Cliffs of Dover." Okay. Yeah, and then uh, what was that? Big John McNeil's breakdown. I used to get tired of that one. Because they played it a lot. But uh, everyone was happy. And then, you know, when they go back to the army, then my grandmother, she'd be very quiet. Yeah, very quiet. Do you remember the food? Like, a lot of people think of the family gathering, and there's there are traditional recipes that are passed down from generation to generation. And certain memories you have of... Like you mentioned, the cream and the brown sugar. Mm-hmm. Do you remember other things growing up that you, you particularly still remember nowadays? Yes, and I practice that myself. And it's the fish feast. And uh, there was always lots of fish because there was a little channel out from my grandmother's landing, we called it. And she had a little boat. She'd roll out there and she'd catch fish when she knew they were coming home. She had an ice house, so she had a, could keep the fish. And they'd come in, and that was what the first thing they got was the fish fry. What 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 kind of fish? Well, she'd catch uh, usually uh, sunfish, sunfish and bass, and uh, then she'd always have that. Uh, and I can still see her doing it today. She cooked with cast iron cookware, and she used to have this huge, big pan, and she'd put potatoes, boiled potatoes, in there, and then she had another can from her baking soda, and she'd crush the potatoes like this with the can to make them bite-sized. And of course she'd put her magic in there, her onions and everything else that she had. And that's what she would feed the guys for breakfast. But she always had the pot of soup. And I'm a soup lover. You could go in there anytime. And the other thing that she had, she would make, we all loved, was a gumdrop cake. She'd put gumdrops, cut them up and put them into this nice cake. And then she made another one and she called it the depression cake. And it was just a a regular cake mix on the bottom. She'd cover it with brown sugar, put lots of butter on it, and then she'd pour water on it, put it in the oven, and then when it would bubble up, it would make a caramel sauce. And I remember that. Oh, it was so delicious. But she used to uh, have wild game. You know, the men would come home, and they'd go out, and maybe they'd shoot a deer, out of season, of course, but... You know, tastes better that way. <laughs> and there was always partridge, you know. 
and she cooked for them men all night if they wanted to eat. Now tell me something. I'm, <coughs> I'm a guy who had to eat a lot of paracrete when I was growing up, but mm-hmm. all I can remember is the sound of the lead pellets that I'm spitting out of my mouth. Oh. Because when you're using <coughs> uh, like a 12-gauge, it just gets into all the meat. Was there a way your, uh, your, your, your mother had of dressing that so that you didn't end up with the... Uh, she the had pellets? a twenty-two cooey, single shot. And she used to give my brother James... Jimmy, we call him, four shells, four partridge. You go and get them. And if he came back with three, he didn't get to eat that partridge. Well, the one you were supposed to get, it got away, so you can't have any of this. So he was a good shot. So they weren't using uh, buckshot? No. uh, That's probably something I should have told my uncle. But she she was famous for canning blueberries, any... Berry that was in season, she would can it. She would, she canned meat, you yeah. know. She'd uh, and I, and then uh, she'd get me to help her can them all hides. Oh, anyway, that's another story. Uh, do you, <clears throat> Wendy, do you remember particular events like a big family meal at the Jocko House or <clears throat> at, at other times in Madawaskar or Whitney in terms of the what as I say the, the sort of social history? that I'm, I'm thinking of, the, the recipes, uh, the music you might have heard? Well, just about the food, I remember going to meet my father for the first time. I was 11 years old, and he lived with his brother, Muck, <coughs> and uh, they were out hunting with my brother, Sandy, and they asked us if we would make them some stew. So we were the chefs for the day. I'm 11, my sister's 12. And, of course, didn't really know anything about cooking. So we, um, you know, we found some potatoes and carrots and we put the meat in the pot. Uh, We didn't have an onion. We didn't know about flavoring. No salt or pepper. (laughs) So you can well imagine what that tasted like. I mean, but at least it was hot. And they didn't complain. They were actually quite happy that they had something (laughs) hot to come home to. But... um, That, that's about my recollection of, uh, you know, family meals. Although, um, over at my uncle Sylvester's place and my aunt Cecilia, they had eight children and we all used to sit around their big table and, uh, you know, have a meal there and watch my uncle as he would always uh, decorate his plate, first with cucumbers around the outside of the plate. <laughs> And then, you know... This is Sylvie Kuyak? Sylvie Kuyak, yes. Sylvie Kuyak. Going back as far as you can, if you can delineate or define the family tree, I know it goes back to people you mentioned before the War of 1812, Mm -hmm. but, and bring me down particularly about Muck and Leo and all the family, because there's so many names floating around, it's hard to remember who's on what side. Well, a couple of years ago, I was fortunate to find out our family tree, which I have shared with uh, Jane Ann and the rest of the family. And it goes back to 1783, and the first um, person on that family tree is a Chief Wambouac. And he had a son, and his name was Pierre-Louis Constant-Penesse. And Pierre, um, well, they actually called him um, Constant, he was at the time the Grand Chief of the Algonquins and he did fight in the War of 1812 
And then, of course, you know, up the family line, you can see his sons who were also fighting, you know, in the same war. And uh, unfortunately, he died in 1834 of the cholera epidemic, and his wife uh, died the very next day of the same um, ailment. So that was uh, that period of time. And then, of course, from there on the family tree, you can see the sons and who they married. And then, of course, you come into my my um, grandmother's side of the family, which was the Baptiste side of the family, Francois. They have very long Algonquin names, which, of course, I can't pronounce, and I really don't know what they mean. That, that would be another nice <clears throat> thing to do is, you know, get those names interpreted by a language speaker. And um, so then his my father's mother was uh, Mary Lavallee, and she married... My grandfather, Paul Jocko, they had 10 children, and there were seven boys and three girls. And uh, they were all, uh, all the boys were in the Second World War. Where does, your father, Leo, where does he sit in that family? Was he the youngest son or the middle? Or uh, I'm not sure, actually. Okay, there was Peter and James, Matt, Leo, Mark. Am I missing any? Cecil. Cecil was the youngest. Cecilia. Yeah, but... Um, well, he was born in 1919, <coughs> so I, I'd have to mm-hmm. see, yeah. you know. The other thing then is, some of them obviously left, but for local people, they certainly know Sylvie Kuyak, and they know Mock and <coughs> Leo. Uh, the daughters get married, and they potentially lose their maiden name, so we're not certain of who they are. <coughs> Who's the group that you're growing up with in the 40s and 50s and 60s that you obviously knew Muck, you knew Sylvie, and, and your dad your Dad was around? Were there others? Like Emmett was probably in, in his uh, heyday at that time. Well, yeah, he was. <laughs> uh, well, uh, old Patty. Yeah. Patty Jocko <clears throat> married Annabelle Perry from Whitney, Ontario. And he lived for a period of time with my grandmother and his wife and one child because uh, Cecil, the youngest of the family, was killed in a motor vehicle accident. So they, my grandmother took to her bed because it was, uh, it, well, th- there was a lot of controversy over was he struck by a vehicle or was he killed somewhere else and put there. Yeah. So she she wanted to fight the RCMP on it, but she, she was just an old woman and she had twenty dollars to her name, and she put it forward. But of course, you know, didn't nothing come of it. But anyway, uh, so Patty Jocko, he stayed with my grandmother for about a year, and uh, I stayed there too, because I looked after my grandmother's personal care and that for her, and uh, kept my uncle's room as, like almost like a, uh, a shrine. She wanted fresh flowers in there, you know, just yeah. on his pictures. So. When she recovered from that, then they moved back to Whitney. But I grew up with, uh, like Uncle Matt had moved to Toronto with his wife, Sheila. And uh, I often saw Muck because he lived right next door to us. And uh, Muck taught my daughters how to sing in in Indian, he said. (laughs) Anyhow. And Leo, her dad, used to come because I was at my mom's for a while, because I lived in a little cabin behind her place. And we'd be down at Mother's sometime, and just coming on dark, and Leo would come up to the window, 
and he'd make a face at a really, you know, terrible face at them. And they were terrified of Leo. <laughs> oh, he's the boo-boo man. <laughs> Call him all things. But there, and then there was, uh, Cecil was around, of course, Aunt Cecilia. And, uh, yeah, so the, I grew up around them. Wendy, tell me about, you obviously had spent time in other places, but you started coming up when you were 10 or 11 to Madawaska, and you'd spend the summer <clears throat> with your father and his people, the clan, the Jockos and the Valleys. Describe some of those summers. Well, it was uh, actually um, a fall. Uh, that was the very first visit. It was during the hunting season, so that would have been October, November time frame. 1960. 1971. 1971. I was 11 in 71. And so uh, when we uh, arrived at the door at Uncle Muck's place, it was dark because it's the fall. So it was probably about five o'clock, but it was dark at that time. And um, all we could see is this uh, face in the window. And my brother Sandy says, oh, don't worry. That's your Uncle Muck. And, of course, he, was, he had no top teeth, but he was smiling. <laughs> he always had a good sense of humor. And so because the old homestead burnt down, unfortunately, my brother Mark burnt it down in 1969. So we, we used to stay with Muck during those periods. And then um, my father also would, uh, you know, ask his sister to take care of us and that would be Cecilia Kuyak who was married to Sylvester Kuyak and we used to stay with them as well so that's but you used to go fishing on Bark Lake with with Leo yeah my dad was a great uh, boat man he loved fishing he liked to be in the boat and I remember at first we only had a canoe so we used to paddle all the way to Bark Lake and up and down the Madawaska all day we'd be paddling, but it was a lot of fun. And then um, each summer there would be improvements. The next summer he had a nice little boat, and so we'd have to row our way to Bark Lake, taking turns, of course, but, you know, <clears throat> we made it. Good exercise, good muscles. And then another summer we'd come back and he'd have a little 10-horse motor. So that was like easy street then, you know, we'd be sailing all over the place, and he loved to take us on the river every night. He used to make uh, shore lunches for you, too. He did, yes. That was another great memory that I have of my father. And, uh, you know, he'd always say, you know, we could bring our friends, and my friend Susan, who comes from the Wasak Singh Reserve, always reminds me of how my father used to take us up the river and make the shore lunches. And he would always have his little knapsack, and in that sack he would have a grate so that he could put a few... Once we went on the shore, which was usually a a beautiful uh, rocky shoreline with the nice moss on there, and he'd make a fire. You know, he'd put stones together, and he'd put this grate, make a fire. And he always had a frying pan with him, and the cooler, of course, which would be keeping the tomatoes the bacon and the cheese cool and fresh so he'd fry the bacon up and make us these you know bacon and tomato sandwiches with cheese and they were just great so would you be going down Park Lake towards the dam or up the river towards we'd be going all over the place actually yeah and then one thing we didn't mention is there was an old cottage 
that the, the, the old people built at Park Lake. And uh, remember that? Whereabouts uh, where, where, where was it? It's so, well, I can't tell you. Did you ever hear of Black Cat Hill yes. on the old highway? Yes, yeah. Up from there, uh, maybe from here to the end of Wendy's Road here. Yeah. And uh, so they built a cabin there in wartime because um, Uncle Peter had some terrible, terrible terrors from the war. And they would take him down there because my grandmother would doctor him, eh? because, well, whatever happened to him in the war. But he was born with some kind of an affliction, uh, which we would identify today as uh, epilepsy. And uh, he wanted to be with James all the time, because James knew how to look after him when they were little boys. And they even went into J.R. Booth's camp to work, and James had the job of taking the lunch out to the men on the on the runway, or what do you call them, not the runways, the... Uh, the skidways? The skidways. And he would take the lunches out to the men at noon, but he had to take Peter with him, because Peter just was, he almost died when James went in the first time. And I think Granny said somebody took him in there on a sleigh, and I think it was Uncle Matt that took him in on the hand sleigh. Uncle Matt was famous, and Matt Valley was famous for building ironwood sleighs. And he took Peter in on the hand sleigh, and once he saw James, then he was okay. But that's one of the reasons they built that cabin down there. And uh, we're still enjoying it today, only they built a newer one. But some semblance of the old one is still there. Do you remember growing up the homemade stuff that would be done, whether it's a quilt or a knitting or woodworking? Oh, yeah. Well, that's actually where my brother Mark was raised after the house burnt down because my father worked at Murray Brothers and he was gone to work quite a lot. So uh, my father um, boarded Mark at the Avery's. So he knows how to make snowshoes and paddles. And when I used to come up in, uh, you know, either... March break or, you know, different periods of time, not necessarily the summer, but different periods of time, I would visit the Avery's. And my father actually would always take us there for uh, barbecues. Um, Alvin Avery used to have these fabulous barbecues, so we used to go there and uh, go into the, the shop. So I saw the big um, drums that, that had the cow hide in them, and they'd have the snowshoe frames and, you know, in between time, you'd see each uh, snowshoe in the beginning stage or the end stage. So, you know, the sequence of events was all, always there. And then, of course, they had the paddle-making machine. Yeah, yeah. So You mentioned when you were growing up uh, tanning uh, hides, deer hides and stuff. Did, did, did you end up selling them down to my uh, great-uncle Charlie Murray at the store in Barry's Bay, or did well, you make something with them? Do you mention that? Because... Well, tanning the hides was just, uh, it wasn't too bad until you got poking them down in with that big paddle my grandma had. She had a paddle so long. And that's when the hair was coming off, and so they'd be really gross smelling, eh? But anyways, um, she was doing this one, and I thought it was done, so I took it out to dry it. She says, oh, no, no, we got to get it softer. So it had to go back into that, you know the brine that she had in that big old tub. And then she told me, she said, I have to have it soft because I'm making a coat for one of them men down there that cuts all the trees down. 
down at the mail. And I said, oh. And she said, yes. And she smoked, smoked it over the fire then and made the most beautiful coat. I don't know which man she gave it to, but I know I helped make it. Moggasins. She made those, and she always made us mitts for the winter. And she made, and they always smelled so good. And every time I smelled deer hide, you know, it's been smoked. I think of her. And uh, but then she always made us from a pair of them old socks, you know, with the red around the top. Yeah, They're great. Yeah. She'd make little inner mitts for us to put in those mitts for the winter. Yeah. We used to fish a lot in on uh, Shallow Lake and Shirley Lake, and we'd stop. That's right. I think I met your father there a few times. Mm-hmm. Ralph Carswell used to have a place. I think it was some sort of hunting camp. But, but we'd <clears> stop. Bruce Carswell. Bruce. Okay. Bruce, yeah. well, we'd stop there. But I remember Charlie Murray was with us, and Charlie Charlie knew Emmett, and he knew the Jockos, and he seemed to have a pretty good relationship with yeah. them. Uh, and I because he bought their their fur. Yeah, and that that's where. And I know he bought uh, from Golden Lake as well. Mm-hmm. So I was just curious as to. What? What do you sell the furs, or you you make something? Well, from they it? had zones. Yeah. They had zones, so they had a quota that they could catch, and uh, and then they'd go to see Charlie Murray. And yeah. I tell you, there was not too many kind words said about Charlie Murray. Really? Oh, okay. he's such a. You know, my dad would say, "That's it. I'm not going to sell him anymore. He's stealing my furs from me." And then they'd go on and. Next time he'd have furs, we're going down to Charlie Murray's because he's going to do grocery shopping yeah. there. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they complain about Charlie, well, but I think he gave them a fair deal. Yeah, well, Charlie got caught because he wasn't too uh, too concerned about quotas either. Yes, yes. He, got, he yeah. got himself really badly uh, fined for some of his activities. Well, my dad one time, and I don't know if I should tell you this, but maybe people might be interested in listening to it. I was about nine years old, and my dad was going to sell his furs in Quebec side. But you had to be very careful when you went over there. And uh, given I have the same tongue as my dad, like my dad liked to talk, and he said to me, no, you don't say anything if they ask you anything. But before we went, my dad had a, an otter skin, and it had maggots on it. And they wrapped that around me, under my clothes because he had to get his furs across. My brothers were wearing the beaver and all this, okay? So we get up there to these people at the border going over to Quebec, and my dad could speak French pretty good. And then I heard my dad saying something. He was looking at me, and he's looking at me like this out of the side of his eye, and he said, what's wrong with you? He said, "Uh, you can't sit still. You're always fidgeting. But it was the maggots crawling on me, okay? And I looked at my oldest brother, and he goes, <laughs> he made his eyes go back and forth me and saying, don't say a word. <laughs> so we get, finally we get through. Yeah. And my dad said, what is wrong with you? And I said, there's bugs crawling on me. Mm-hmm. And he peeled off into waves of laughter. But I think he got maybe $5 for the maggoty old otter skin. And I was, oh. So... <clears throat> Tell me, either one of you, uh, more about sort of, and, and particularly the years if you can. Like, I'm kind of thinking, do you overlap, the two of you? Do you know each other when you're growing up? Or do you, are you from different generations? Yeah, different generations. Mm-hmm. I do recall seeing Jane Ann from a distance when I was about maybe 13 years old. 
going into her mother's house and I was uh, swimming at the dock, yeah. uh, you know, just across the road from the house. But uh, she must have been visiting. But I remember seeing Jane Ann and her hair was really long. Yeah. yeah, she had very, very long hair. Talk to me a bit about what the life was like in your particular generations. Like, I, I didn't see a lot of sort of socioeconomic split. Everybody was at the same kind of level. It didn't matter whether you were Polish, Irish, Indigenous, or whatever. It was so. Was was it similar when you're uh, in Madawaska in the seventies or in the forties and fifties? Everybody sort of was on the same economic strata, or or well, was, was it always, different? There was always the ones that had a little more money than the rest of us. But they didn't lord it over us, you know. They just lived at a different... Like, they had hydro, and where we didn't have hydro at all. And my father went away to look for work, and that's when I... Joe was just born, and I forget when he was born. Well, I'm 11 years older than him. But anyways, um, in the 50s, I think. No, it would have been more than that. Anyway, uh, my youngest brother. So my dad went away to work, and we were living at my grandmother's myself and my two brothers and my mom and I guess we were getting on my grandmother's nerves so my mother and Cecil her youngest brother there was an old homestead in the bush behind what well, was on my grandfather's property and Matt Lavalley had built a log cabin there for grandma and grandpa Lavalley and he looked after them old people there and then the old gentleman passed away, and Grandma Lavalley went to live with Joe Lavalley, her son, and Louisa, his wife, in Whitney. So that kind of had all fallen in, but my mom knew that foundation was there. So her and Cecil and my two older brothers, they went into the bush and they cut down poplar trees, and she built a house. She built a log house. Um, and my dad seemed to be gone a long, long time that I can remember. And every morning she would send my two brothers out to go to the river to see what kind of boards had floated down the river from the craze. <laughs> so when it rained at my our house, you had to all squirm into the corner where the, the roofing was. And uh, dad was gone over the winter. And somebody brought her, and it was uh, Joel Francois. Oh, what a character he was. He was always going into town and stealing this old gentleman's chickens. And he'd come to my mother in the middle of the night, Katie, make me soup. And she says, well, are them chickens dead? And he'd say, well, no, I'll fix that, though. And there she is making this soup for this old guy. But anyways, one day he brought her a bandy hen and a rooster. So she had eggs for us. But they lived in the cellar. And five o'clock in the morning in the winter is pretty early, and he's down there just growing. <laughs> so come the spring, and there was no phones for Dad to get hold of my mother. All she knew, he was away working, and so between Joe Francois and Cecil, her brother, they'd raid gardens and do things, but she was, and my grandmother would bake bread and help us out. Eh? So we got through the winter in that log house. Yeah. Uh, like you could throw the dog out through the crack in the wall, she used to say, because it was, you know, it was no chinking. And she went to the dump one day, 
and she found an old mattress, not the way they're made today, but she brought home a whole bunch of that on a sleigh, on the toboggan or whatever it was, and that's what they chinked the walls. We chinked the walls, so it was a lot warmer. Come spring, my dad was famous for whistling. Yeah, and the trail came right from where the second old house was, and you have to walk up through the little bit of swamp. And we heard the whistling. And we thought, oh, Dad's home. So he came in, but he had been away, and he was very ill, and he almost died. And he was up at Coppercliff. Is it Coppercliff? Yes, yeah. Coppercliff. And he was working in the mines, and he took sick there. And no way, they said he was in a coma and everything else. But he came home. And nine months later, my youngest brother was born. So I think he whistled a good tune for my mom when he got home. <laughs> it's, it's hard to be self, self-aware sometimes. So, for instance, I never thought twice about my grandparents' farm. And in 1958, they finally got electricity. Yeah. And I've been going up there to these coal oil lamps. And mm-hmm. That's just the farm. They never got a telephone until later. Uh, we saw our first... People had radios. My father talked about a radio coming into Charlie Murray's in 1927. A lot of people didn't have radios till the 1940s mm-hmm. because during the Depression they couldn't, they couldn't afford them. Um, outhouses. Everybody in Barry's Bay had an outhouse. Mm-hmm. There wasn't indoor plumbing. Of course uh, not. Finally in 1970-71 they got the sewage system and all the fun was taken out of Halloween because we used to tip over the outhouses <laughs> on Halloween. And hopefully we'd have somebody inside when we were doing yes. it. But it's not so much how things were. What are the things you both kind of remember of Madawaska, Whitney, or the area growing up uh, native or just a member of the community that you find striking or different now that, that in some ways you're glad it's not that way or maybe you're sad that it isn't that way, and maybe the way you played, maybe where you had your swimming hole or something like that. Well, my my memories of uh, going to Madawaska were, you know, what you're just describing with uh, the old outhouse, no no electricity, no heat, no running water, the basic necessities. the The pails were on the kitchen counter for water. Muck had an old pump that you know you would refresh that pail with. And, uh, you know, just summer fun, swimming off the train trestle. They always had a big dock where they've got the J.R. Booth um, history board. Now that's where we used to hang out. And, you know, memories of my father taking us up the river and on top of the shore lunches that we used to have. After we ate, we'd be laying on the nice mossy bank and he'd be telling us uh, old uh, Algonquin stories, you know about Wasquetjuk and how the world came to be and Turtle Island. And he would be telling us all these really nice old stories. And, uh, you know, when you're brought up with no amenities, you don't realize that you're poor. We didn't know. We thought we were rich if we had cookies and milk. Yeah. You know, so we didn't realize any different. And, you know, just happy times and carefree times and... I remember I had a little fishing net and I used to try and catch monarch butterflies, you know, going through the fields. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, 
I remember my dad saying, why don't you go and try and, you know, make a couple of little birch bark canoes to play with? Because that's another thing. We didn't have the internet. We had no phones. So you had to make your own entertainment. You had to make your own fun. And I took my Uncle Mock's big jackknife, and I was going to go and cut myself a nice piece of birch bark off the tree. Well, didn't I have the knife the wrong way, and it snapped over my fingers. Oh, Anyway, so I peeled it out, and it was so sharp, that knife, there was no blood, but as soon as I bent my fingers, then, of course, the blood came oh. oozing out, but that's how sharp that knife was. So anyways, I was not really a tender foot, and I just, you know, wrapped a Kleenex around it, and I got myself a nice piece of birch bark, and, you know, just making your own fun, just very happy, carefree times, and, you know, other times, like... Um, children often do well at least i did you know stealing a couple of my dad's cigarettes and smoking in the outhouse (laughs) taking some of uncle sylvester's snuff and trying it out putting it down in your mouth (laughs) and they had one phone booth in matawaska and i remember you know going up there once a week to phone my mother you know at a certain time because that's what you had to do in the old days you know, for me on a Sunday, six o'clock after supper, and so we can have a bit of a chat so she can know that we're all right mm-hmm. up, up in Madawaska with my father. Did I share something with you? I loved that way of life when we lived that way. And I've gone out in the world, and uh, I wanted to join the army when I was 16 instead of getting married. And my dad would not let me join the army. And he said, all that comes out of the armies are drunks, and you're not going to join the army. But in spite of my dad's wishes and his, well, his, he thought he knew it, I was in a uniform for 25 years. I was a correctional officer at the women's prison in Kingston. That's where my career was. And I wasn't tall enough to be a police officer. That was my next thing, okay? But anyways, I've been out in the world, and now all I want to do is go home, and I have a place up in Madawaska, and uh, I'm doing land-based teachings. I want to teach children how to survive on the land, like my dad taught us. My dad taught us how to be out there, and you go out, and if you don't have food with you, he'd tell you to go and get cattails, and the roots of that cattail, and he'd, you know, and he could always make you a dessert, because he had wintergreen, and he'd make you up a dessert. And make a bandit on, the, on the, old, the old stone on the fire, you know. But I yearn to return there. I want to stay there now. One of the things, again, people think of a deprivation. Oh, we didn't have TV, internet, cell phones, electricity, etc. But the, the flip side of that, too, is that you do have some things that you either don't have any longer or that you now understand that they were of tremendous value. You just didn't appreciate them time. And the one I'm thinking of in particular is the one I remember the most about the Jocko house was that artesian well that was halfway up to Tub Lake. Mm-hmm. What, have, have you ever gone back there? I presume you knew about it when, when uh, you were oh, there. Yes. But uh, the property, <clears throat> I don't know if, even if the property is still in your family's hands <clears throat> or not. Well, we're hoping to get it back there. Okay. And uh, from some of your relatives. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but to that, her hand on that. <laughs> that. 
for me, the Artesian well was a very special place, and that's what I'm, I don't want to impose that upon you. But are there things like that that you think of nowadays that, you know, it doesn't have electricity, it doesn't have bells and whistles, but boy, it was fun, or it's a special place, it's mm-hmm. a sacred place that I want to preserve, and that it tells you something about who you are or what you are. It made us humble. It made us humble the way we grew up. And if the light was on in the window after dark, you knew Granny was waiting up for you to come home. And uh, there used to be an old guy in town, and he used to chase us young girls all the time. But as long as I could see her light, I, I could run just like the wind to get there, and he couldn't. I could outrun him, right? Yeah. Billy Cameron. <laughs> anyway, um, but it was just that light shining in the window, and I often thought of it. And I have a coal oil lamp. You know, I light that. But her greatest pride was she had a mantle lamp. Did you ever see the mantle lamps? I probably did, but I don't, I'm not quite do you, certain. Do you know Coleman Lantern? And it yeah. has that, that, that mesh on oh, it. Oh, the mantle, yeah. Yeah, but this was a great big lamp that James brought her from. I don't know where. He was overseas somewhere, and he brought that home to her. And that mantle sat over there, and it ran on napta gas. And she had a great big fancy globe. And then there was another one that fit over it. And uh, if she turned it up too high, the mantle would start to burn. So she'd turn it down, but she'd always put salt down the chimney. And that would stop it from burning. And that was one of her greatest treasures, was that lamp. It reminds me of something else. It's like the salt coming down the chimney. I don't know whether it was Sylvie, Muck, I don't think it was Muck, or Leo. But I'm sitting in the filing room one night, on night shift, we're taking our lunch, and I had a habit of, I always carried a jackknife with me and whittling away on something. And I think it, it might have been Leo who said, he, oh, you whittle like a white man. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? <laughs> I was whittling with the uh-huh. blade coming at me. And he said, <clears throat> and I, yeah, it was, it was Leo. Whittle like a native. Turn the blade around and whittle away from you. Why? Because you'll cut yourself eventually. Yeah. Uh, that, I think that's what triggered that memory uh, when you were talking about that. But do you remember things like that where you... And it doesn't have to be native. It's just anything. Where you, you did things or you were taught things that made you feel that you were you were getting something from another generation, a certain level of wisdom that you might have discovered yourself after so many cuts. But Absolutely. I do, I do recall my father was a great carver. My mother told me that herself, that, you know, my dad was a great carver. And one summer, he showed us how to make cedar fans. Yes. And if you ever want to see a cedar fan, which is a very old technique... You can go to our cultural center, and you'll see a double cedar fan made up, made up from a cedar tree. So my father, one evening, took his axe, and we went over to a cedar tree. And the way he chopped the bark, he peeled it back like a cupboard, and he took another swipe of the axe, and he carved out a, a chunk of cedar. And then he closed that skin so... You, you didn't know that he actually had, you know, cut the tree. So it was 
basically peeling back the skin and putting it back so as not to damage the tree. And he took out his uh, jackknife, and he always carried a whetstone with him in his little knapsack. So he sharpened that knife, you know, as sharp as it could be, and then he started carving this cedar into a beautiful fan. And the way he put the notches in and the way he put the splices, after a while, he, he uh, you know, fanned out each rib and stuck it in a certain way that it was in a complete, uh, beautiful, beautiful shape fan out of a cedar tree. So he taught me how to do that. So when he was on the night shift, I decides I'm going to take my dad's uh, jackknife and I'm going to make me a fan. And of course, when you have to cut, you know, some of these um, ribs into the fan, you do have to bring the knife toward you. Now, my father was obviously an expert in making these fans. I was not. So I brought that jackknife back towards me and took a nice <coughs> splice out of my thumb. Needless to say. <laughs> so... You know, I'm kind of dangerous with a jackknife. But anyway, I was so proud of myself when he came home. You know, obviously it wasn't as nice as his fan, but I actually did make a fan, and I showed him the big band-aid that I had on my thumb. <laughs> he probably just chuckled. There was another one, too, and I remember, I, actually, I read this, and then I tried it. It comes from a book uh, involving Joe LaValle. Uh, you can get it up at the visitor center. in the uh, uh, it's a great book. I just love, love reading it. But Joe had this trick that I wanted, I would have loved to have known earlier. Because when you go camping, you can't have refrigeration with you. Obviously, there's no fridge. But he used to take a, a pound of butter and wrap it up in sort of cabbage or lettuce leaves. And I thought, well, how does that work? But it actually does work. Uh, and I was curious, things like that, where... As I say, it doesn't have to be native, but it, it can be anybody. You, you know, your grandmother teaches you something or, or that. And uh, I, I'm always fascinated. I hear these <coughs> kinds of stories around here from a lot of different people about the way, like, the way people pile wood. Uh, you'd think it was a, an art form because <laughs> if I try to pile wood, it's a complete mess. <laughs> they, but there's, there, there, there's something to how they do things around this area that I'm, I'm quite intrigued by. I was wondering if the sand-baked beans, where that came from, Jane Ann, is that a, a native invention, or who, well, where would Amos that have come didn't from? didn't do that until <clears throat> they started trading with the French for the pots, the cast iron pots. Yeah. And, of course, we have sand-baked bean people in our family, and the, the generation that's here now is my brother Joseph. And uh, we just had a big sand bean supper, and Wendy, we had her up, and she snapped away at it. I think she really enjoyed them. But uh, again, that's something too. You, you heat the sand all day. You dig the pit. You have your beans ready. They go in there. You take all the coals off. The sand bakes those beans during the night. It, they're so delicious. And, and, and that's exactly the kind of thing. If if you lose that from one generation to the next. <clears throat> you may have a memory of it, but you don't know how to recreate it. He's teaching my son, my 42-year-old son, how to do it uh, up at the land where we're at. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to share with you 
My dad taught me how to paddle a canoe without making a sound because he would take me hunting when he was going to poach for a deer and we're in the canoe. And the paddle goes back and then you turn it a certain way and bring it up. You can't make a rivulet. Like you can't make any ripples in the water. And I was trying to get used to it and trying to get used to it. And every time I'd come home from there, I'd have a headache. And my mom says, why does she always have a headache? My dad would tap me on the head if I didn't do it right. And I said, I think I'm still flat on top of my head from him touching me with the paddle. So I finally learned how to do that. Well, Tom Murray, again, had this great story. And Tom was pretty accurate on things. And I still, I still don't know the sort of physiognomy of it. But Joe Francois, who was, I think, born in 1839 or something. So when my grandfather knew him, he was a lot older. But he said after they got the boot in 1893 from Algonquin Park, they came down to Kaminiske, and he said, Joe either only had one arm or one arm only worked by that time. But he said he never saw a man who could paddle a canoe in a perfectly straight line with only one arm. Now, how he did it, I don't know. But I'm he... wondering if that was his son, because his son, James, had lost an arm. But he was a perfect canoe man. Could be. Well, see, to, yeah. to Tom would have... That's right. Joe Francois, I have the original... Uh, we called him Jimmy Francois, and he went to live in Cardinal. That's where a lot of the Francois went. We yeah. call them Francois. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the three or four different spellings, too, that yeah, you end up with. there is. But in 1890, they're living on Kamenisgeg, and I, I have Joe's census data. Uh, he's, he's about... 50 years old at the oh, time. Oh, that's the one, that's the one that, remember you sent me the picture and you said there was a relative and did I remember this gentleman? Mm-hmm. Albert. Maybe it was Albert then, yeah, but he had both his arms, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know whether he had lost the arm or it just wasn't functioning, but Joe, Joe <clears throat> was notorious for paddling Mm-hmm. A canoe as quietly yeah. and as straight as you possibly could. Well, interesting that you should say Kamenskeg as well, because um, every time I go up there, I have a great sense of belonging in that area. For some reason, I feel like I'm part of that area, because obviously that's where our great-grandmother either was born or lived, and our own grandmother you know, over by um, Cumbermere and Brudenell, which is basically the same general grid. Yeah. Well, again, I'm still trying to sort out... uh, There's an 1853 document where the Canadian Geological Survey sends somebody up through the Bonshire. They cross from Round Lake, the Sherwood, to Kaminiski, and then they go out to the York. And there's um, a group of indigenous... Somewhere around Papineau Lake, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but they're coming up and connected to something that's going on in Masks Island, and the Apiongo and the Madawaska the natives are coming down there too. So, I, and I know there've been all sorts of artifacts that have been found on Masks Island. You kind of look at it. I live there now, and I'm kind of going, yeah, there was probably something here. It was like a a meeting ground for different... Mm-hmm. So, Usually so, an island will be. Yeah, so That's when, why the short ear and when, all of us so important. Yeah, when Joe gets the boot, it would be a natural to come down the river. To, yeah. And he had a farm uh, 
very close to Mass Island, the first one, and then later on he, he moves down towards... Uh, Weren't they, didn't they there. move to Conroy's Marsh? Yeah, and that's, that's where yeah. he's, he's down there somewhere, yeah. Uh, yeah. and that's where I run into the, the sun, and I can... I don't know how you pronounce that again. Moise. Moise. Yeah. My grandfather said Moise for some reason. Yeah, so. Moise. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's what they call them. And the other thing before we close is I wanted to tell you our grandfather, uh, great-grandfather, Jack Lavallee, some call him John, some call him Jack, he has a connection to the Mayflower. When the Mayflower sank, um, of course, the payroll was down there. And they were, when they came up on shore after they got out away from the sinking of the ship, they said, we need someone to dive down to get the payroll. Anybody can do that. We'll give them X many dollars. Yeah. And he walked up, Jack Lavalle walked up to them and he says, you have a bottle of whiskey here ready for me and I'll go and get the payroll. And he dove down. And that was in December. <laughs> And he got the payroll, and when he came back up, they gave him his bottle of whiskey. And away he went. <laughs> You'd need more than a bottle of whiskey to warm your body up well, after they, that. They, yeah. they just couldn't believe yeah. that he did that. Yeah. 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 Well, I yeah. And I, I have that in a paper somewhere. I needed to share that with you, too. Yeah. <laughs> and my dad was the best canoe man around. Uh, I used to be kind of proud of him. He'd be showing off. I knew he was showing off. But he could... Take a drink out of the water without tipping that canoe. And somebody wrote a song about him, and they said he was born in a canoe in a snowstorm. <laughs> was that Percy? Did he write the song? No, Melvin Jessup. Melvin Jessup. Yeah, he's a, a guy that my dad, he took my dad's trap line when my dad moved away. Okay. My dad, he got that, yeah. But Emmett's another story. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm five, ten years old, and I'm, Monday, I'm running into people like Emmett Chartreau and and uh, Bruce, uh, and I keep thinking it's Ralph Carswell, but I guess it was Bruce. Ralph Carswell was yeah. married to Irene Collins, and he ran the post office in town. Okay, so it was Bruce. And it was Bruce Carswell that had the camp out along Macaulay. Yeah. And uh, Harry Riley had a camp out there, too. Yeah. My dad guided for him. That was Wendy Jocko and Jane Ann Chartrand in conversation with Barry Conway. We couldn't let Wendy go without asking her a few more questions about not only her own military career, but also about that remarkable military history of the entire Jocko family. Here then is Wendy Jocko again speaking with Barry Conway. When I was 17, I went to a school called East York Collegiate in Toronto. And that was actually a period of time when the military was actively recruiting. I do recall campaign TV commercials you know, some people know where there's challenge and laughter, people just like you. And I know I can't sing, but <laughs> I always remember those commercials. And uh, one day, uh, the sergeant came in from the local recruiting center in Toronto to speak to the students. And after, you know, his spiel, um, I thought, hey, I'm going to do this. Because, just to rewind the clock prior to that moment in time... When I was four years old, we lived in Petawawa, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, our house was across from a variety store. And I was on my little tricycle one day, and I noticed a soldier coming out of this variety store, and I thought, oh, look at him, a soldier. You know, I was quite, uh, you know, excited to see a soldier, and uh, 
I thought to myself at that very moment, that's what I'm going to do when I grow up. So, you know, fast forward to 17, the recruiting sergeant comes in and and I was uh, excited to tell my mother, that's what I want to do. You can be 17 to join, but the parent actually has to sign the paperwork. So she was willing to sign the paperwork because she was, you know, she was in the Women's Land Army in Scotland during the war. So she was, uh, you know, certainly um, pro-military. And uh, my, my own father, of course, was in the military with five of his brothers, his uh, half-sisters and, uh, you know, uncles. I'm, you know, we come from a long yeah. line of military people. So, yeah, I was uh, 17 at the time, so she signed the paperwork. And uh, it took a, a little while to get in, though. So I was 19 years old when I actually signed the dotted line and went away to Cornwallis, Nova Scotia. So that, that, that would have been uh, September 1979. And from Cornwallis, you, you have to select a trade, though. Yeah, yeah so I... Uh, I originally wanted to be a policewoman because I I was always um, fascinated by police work. My my father Leo actually used to read these detective magazines, and that's probably where that notion came from. <laughs> he always had these detective magazines, and uh, yeah, so I thought I'd like to be a policewoman. And then uh, when the recruiting officer phoned, he said he had. Uh, Policewoman going in, or a military police course going in six months, or a supply technician course in six weeks. So I thought, well, six weeks sounds better than six months, so I'll do the supply technician. So that's what I did during my military career. And you spent 24 years? 23. Two, two weeks shy of my 24th year. Yep. And you left the military as a... Sergeant. Did you ever get to the police? No, I didn't. No, no, I didn't. Describe the 23 years then, if you can, by location and activity. Sure. So um, when I flew, I uh, flew from Trenton, Canadian Force Base Trenton, to Cornwallis, Nova Scotia in 1979, September, as I mentioned, and that was to do what they call basic training. So you've heard of boot camp. Well, that's where I went, off to boot camp. And um, I was actually a couple of days later than a lot of the recruits arriving for whatever reason. I don't know. Just that's the time that they told me to report in. And I noticed some of the... Because uh, I was in an all-girl platoon. Just want to mention that as well. We didn't intermingle with the uh, the male platoon at that time. So we, I was in an all-girls platoon. And I saw them with coveralls on, and I thought to myself, oh, they've already got their coveralls, or their uniforms, you know. And, uh, you know, they kind of knew how to march a little bit. So I was going in basically cold turkey green here. I didn't know what end was up, but I, you know, certainly learned fast and, you know, went through all the the different training, which, of course, is uh, weapons training, you know, uh, lots of drill learning all about the military, a lot of physical training. It was quite exciting. So then from there, uh, I went to Canadian Forces Base Borden and uh, to Canadian Forces um, Supply and Logistics School. That's where I was for about 13 weeks uh, during that period of time. And then you get to select, you know, once you graduate, what base you'd like to go to. So they always give you three choices. So I picked 
Petawawa, Calgary, and Edmonton. So I got the last choice as the first choice. So I went out to Edmonton in 1980. And it was, of course, the coldest province compared to Ontario, minus 45 on a good day. So that was a bit of a shock to the system. And I was actually there for six years uh, as a supply technician. So worked in various areas on the base. I was at base supply. I worked at the Canadian Forces Survival Training School for the SARTEX. And I worked at the big Canadian Forces Supply Depot there. And that was an Air Force location. Yes, that was a, an Air Force base at the time, Air, Air Force environment. Yeah, and uh, I. Then you went to Calgary. Then I went to Calgary, yes, which was a, an army base, which was a bit of a shock to the old system. Not a, not initially, because at first I did work on the base side because the field side was not open to women. So that was 1986 that I arrived in Calgary. And um, I think it was 1988 that I went to the field. They opened up the field side to women. And I remember uh, a female sergeant asking me, do you want to volunteer for the field side? And I said, well, no, but if I have to go, you know, I, I have to go. So needless to say, where was I a couple of weeks later, but on the field side. But um, I actually quite liked the field side because, uh, well, I liked being outside. That was no problem. Living in a tent, I, I didn't mind that. It was like camping, actually. <laughs> but you're there with your unit playing war games, you know. So, yeah, it was... So when does Bosnia come in? While, while you're in Calgary or no, later? No, that, that uh, comes in later. Uh, so from Calgary... I left in 1992. I was posted to Chilliwack, so they gave me a bit of a reprieve. I was at a training base in Chilliwack for four years. However, um, a couple of... So that was be 92. So in 93, you know, the war in Bosnia um, started actually in 92, and then Calgary needed extra soldiers, so they were, you know, uh, looking at various bases who they could recruit, and I actually was sent back to Calgary and went to Bosnia in 93. And you went, you went back in a second time, though, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yeah. I went uh, back in, in 1998 when I was posted to Petawawa. Okay. Yeah. And then, from so somewhere between Calgary, Bosnia, you come back here to the... Uh, well, when I was posted to Chilliwack, when I got back from Bosnia, I uh, for my last posting, I wanted Petawawa so that I could come to Golden Lake, which it was called at the time, and I wanted to live on the reserve. So what I had to do was, of course, put into the career manager a posting to Petawawa, which I got, and what I did was I phoned the band office and let them know that I'd like to come and live on the reserve, and was there any available housing? Well, coincidentally, there was. They just uh, finished building two four-bedroom units, and it was on an application type of a process. So I put in my application, and I was uh, successful. And I moved here in 1996 when I uh, got posted. So you commuted from here to Petawawa? Yes, I did. Yeah, it was about a uh, 45-minute drive, which was... uh, Actually quite relaxing, you know, uh, there's really nobody on the highway at zero dark 30, and uh, I didn't mind that at all, traveling back and forth. 
And you stayed with the military, and you were you were you retired out of Petawawa in two thousand and two thousand and two. I retired, yes, September of two thousand and two. Yeah. yeah. Let's go back a bit to the military history. You mentioned the eighteen twelve. Uh, then there were some World War One uh, relatives you you had. Yes. Well, I, I I did. I was fortunate enough to find out my family history and my family tree. And uh, as I mentioned earlier. The first uh, relative was my great-grandfather times six, Pierre-Louis Constant Pinesse. He was the Grand Chief of the Algonquins at the time, and you'll see if you look up his name in history, he did fight in the War of 1812 along with you know a few of his sons. So that's the first person in my family tree that I you know found out was in the military. And... Uh, my own grandfather, his older children, Michael Jocko, and a stepson, Michael Stokwa, they were in World War One, as well as my grandmother's brothers, uh, Peter Lavalley, Matt Lavalley, and John Lavalley. They were all in World War One. So, like a, you know, quite a large uh, group of uh, the family. Uh, saw active service. And unfortunately, uh, Michael, no, pardon me, it was Peter, Peter Lavalley, her um, brother, he was only 20, 20 years old, and he was killed overseas. Mm-hmm. World War Two, six Jocko boys Yes, six Jocko boys from Madawaska all joined the service for uh, World War Two, Including your father. Including my father, Leo, yeah. So was there, there must have been growing up in the summers, you're starting to come up in 1971, there must have been talk or indication that the military was a, a potential career choice, or did, or did you know that at that time? Well, I didn't, you know, know the full facts of it, but I did know that my dad was in the military. I mean, I I remember him saying that he won a marathon race when he was in the military. And he learned to cook when he was in the military. But he never really talked about, you know, exactly what what he did or, you know, what action he saw, if any. Yeah. So what what was the history of the six brothers? They all did they sign up immediately or one after another, and they all came home? Well, that that history I I don't know, but all I know is that they all joined up. They all you know right from the beginning of the war to the end, so nineteen thirty nine to nineteen forty five, and uh, my father was in the forestry corps, Muck was in the signals corps, James was an engineer. I really can't tell you what Patty did or Pete. But Pete sounds like, from the earlier discussion, he had some serious PTSD consequence yeah. from, mm-hmm. from the war. Yeah. Did, did that bother you or concern you yourself when you were thinking about going? Uh... No. Ironically enough, uh, when I was a child living in Pembroke, I always remember watching the show called Mount Batten, and it was clips of the war. And I, I had a fascination. I, I just loved watching that show. And I also recall looking at different history books with, you know, photographs of the war. Casualties, you know, soldiers. But it, it, didn't, uh, it didn't upset me. Yeah. I was drawn to that for some reason. 
Tell me the story, if you want, of uh, when you're in Bosnia, you, you discovered your second career. Uh, sure, yeah. So when I was in Bosnia, I was uh, in 98 working in Zagreb. There was a soldier from, it was either one RCR or three, I can't remember who was there at the time with me. Anyways, uh, there was a soldier that had passed away. And we were in charge of his repatriation because we were stationed at Zagreb. And the captain at the time went to watch the embalming process. And of course, this kind of sparked a little interest in me. And I thought, you know, I wish I could have gone to see the process too. Anyway, she came back and she told us all about it. And, um, you know, it was uh, rather scientific, nothing ghoulish about it. Anyways, uh, then we organized uh, like a funeral uh, reception for his unit, so that would have been the the regimental sergeant major coming through uh, with his, you know, captains, majors, etc., to escort this soldier back to Canada. So we provided a nice reception for them. We had a lot of nice food, and they were actually quite impressed by that. You know, it was very unusual. So. The captain, you know, she said, thanks very much, you know, for, for organizing all that. But I just thought it was natural because food is comforting when people are coming. You know, it, it was a, just a nice thing to do. And uh, so I thought at that very moment, you know, when I retire from the military, I think that this could be potentially a second career for myself. You had an interesting expression, nurses look after you to keep you alive, and what you were doing was something else. Do you remember what you told me? Yeah, I do. Like, uh, people, when I told people what I wanted to do for my second career, of course, sometimes the conversation just stops. Why would you want to do that? You know, who does something like that? But the way I looked at it was, nurses keep people alive, and I take care of people when... They've passed away into the spirit world, like I'm taking care of them. That's their final journey, to make them look the best that they can. And uh, I had been to quite a few funerals prior to that experience. Here on the reserve, you know, there was quite a few people that passed away. Because it's a small community, we're all pretty well related. You go to that person's funeral. And looking at the deceased person in the coffin, I, I sometimes I used to think, they look better in death than they than they ever did, and because the funeral directors take such good care of them, you see, with their hair, their clothing, you know, they're immaculate, and so, yeah, it's a very caring profession. And so you end up becoming a funeral director and spending ten years in Scotland. Yes. And you become the director of the British. Tell me that story. Okay. So when I was in Scotland, I, uh, you know, I, I'm the type of a person I like to work. So I wasn't there long before I landed a job. And I looked up the phone book under various funeral firms, and I saw the face of a lady, and her company was called Abercorn Choices. And I thought, I'm going to phone that company. So I did. I explained the story to her, who I was, why I was there, you know, this was a second career choice for me, and I was wondering, do you have any openings? And she said, well, why don't you come in for an interview? So I went in for the interview, and uh, yeah, she hired me on the spot. So that's, uh, that's how I started in my funeral career. So she actually owned the funeral business, she owned a monumental masonry business, and she also owned 
two cemeteries, so I got a good introduction. But you ended up in the British funeral director job? Sure, and so then um, from there uh, I, I went on to do my training with what they called the BIFD, the British Institute of Funeral Directors. And in Scotland, it's a self-regulated industry. They have a very, very involved training course. It took me a good th- you know, three years to get through it. And uh, at, uh, at the end of it, I graduated. I got my diploma. And I used to attend various meetings. And when it came time to elect a new governor, my name was put forward. They called them the governor at the time, but then it was changed to the director. So they put my name forward, and yeah, I was um, voted in as the governor for the the British Institute of Funeral Directors of Scotland. Now, this may come as a shock to you, but Wendy Jocko shows up in Scotland and becomes the governor of the funeral directors. When Jocko shows up at uh, Pickwalknagon and becomes chief. How does this happen? Do you ever wonder about it? Well, I always, I'm a firm believer uh, you're where you're supposed to be. You know, you don't really, well, my estimation, sure you have goals in life or you meet people along the way that, you know, you meet and they encourage you to do certain things. When I first came back to Pickwalknagon here, they changed their name. So that's why I'm referring to it now as Pickwalknagon rather than Golden Lake. It was, uh, I was here for about four years and there was an election coming up. Uh, So in 2001, I was uh, nominated by two elders to run for council and uh, I was elected. So from 2001 to 2003, I was a member of council. But then I went away for the 10-year period, and I came back in 2015 to Pickwalknagon after my absence. And uh, I worked in Ottawa, actually, for two years at a great place. It was called Minwashin Lodge. It was a, an organization uh, that took care of First Nation Inuit and Métis ladies. So I worked there for two years. So 2017 elections, somebody said, oh, they're talking about you running again, Wendy. And I said, really? So, you know, I was nominated, and so I tossed my hat back into the ring, and I got elected. And then uh, the former uh, chief, White Duck Kirby, uh, decided that he was going to take a break, because he had been in the seat for roughly 17 years. He was a great chief, and... uh, he said to me that I should run, and he was going to nominate me. And so I did uh, get nominated by Kirby and another colleague, Kevin Lamar, and uh, I was elected as chief. Flip that around to the military. You, your, I think, six-time-removed great-grandfather was in the War of 1812. Your grandfathers uh, and other people in your family were in World War One. Your father and five of your uncles were in World War Two. You yourself served in uh, the military for nearly 24 years. Uh, you were married with several kids, four, I think. Four, yes. Four, and did anybody go into the military from them? Yes, and my older son, James, uh, joined the military. Yeah, and he did three years with one RCR, but felt that it just wasn't his... Uh, 
you know, his life choice. Do, do you have any uh, connections with the uh, like the veterans of the Legion? Oh yes, also? yeah. I'm in the. Uh, I, I belong to the Eganville Legion. I also belong to the Aboriginal Veterans Octoctones, which is the Aboriginal veterans, uh, you know, uh, in Ottawa. And I, um, I was actually on the the Veterans COVID uh, committee, you know, and for Veterans Affairs. So I, I do have a lot of uh, involvement with with veterans. Do you ever wonder, or have you ever discussed it, or thought about? It? I presume you have. What is it about the Jocko clan and the military? It's a deep-rooted uh, association. Some would say a passion. Some would say a necessity. Why are the Jockos so interested in the Canadian military? That's a very good question. I don't know. It must just be in the blood because we're warriors. <laughs> That was Wendy Jocko, chief of the Algonquins of Pigwaktagon First Nation, in conversation with Barry Conway. Earlier, they were joined by Jane Ann Chartrand, Wendy's cousin and a longtime resident of Madawaska. A special thank you to both of them for sharing with us some of their inspiring story about their unique Algonquin heritage and Indigenous culture. We hope you enjoyed today's show, Algonquin Voices, and we hope it might inspire you to learn a little more about our Algonquin neighbors and their impressive Indigenous heritage. Those interested can further explore it by visiting the Omamawini Pomajuan, the Algonquin Way Cultural Center, located at 469 Kokomis Anamo in Golden Lake. I'm Kristen Marchand, and for the producer of the Opiongo Line, Barry Conway, we'd like to wish you all a good day. And God bless.